Turn with me in our continuing study of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Sometimes you get the intro before, sometimes I like to read the scripture first. This morning, let's just dive right in. Jesus feeds the 5,000. So we're going to Mark 6, verse 30, and we'll go to verse 44, and then we'll come back and break it up. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the, country, the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. 1 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we've rightly understood. Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. I remember getting home from one of the youth retreats that we used to run over Columbus Day weekend when I was doing youth ministry a decade ago. These were fantastic retreats that kind of kicked off the school year for our our ministry, our program, and it was a lot of work coordinating all the couple different churches. I was the only full-time youth pastor, so I sort of took on a lot and scheduled enough leaders, made sure the kids were signed up, uh, did a lot of the work working with the uh, camp that we were going to, and meals and transportation, everything. A lot of help, but it was still a lot of work. And then the actual, so that was just the planning. Then the actual retreat itself was about 48 hours over Columbus Day weekend. So I'd come home very happy, and they were usually great retreats, but pretty drained. And so I have this vague memory of one of those times coming home and just laying out on the couch, and I think popping in a movie, getting some food, and just looking forward to doing nothing. 
when the phone rings. Of course, tempted to ignore it, but uh, I, I realized it was one of the fathers of two of the boys that had been on the retreat, so I answered it dutifully, and hey, Dave, remember how my younger son was was feeling pretty sick in his stomach, and everybody just said, oh, he's been eating junk food and staying up late. That's all it is. Well, he's got appendicitis, and they're about to take his appendix out at the hospital. You think you could come over and pray for him? I'll be right there. Similar thing happened to Dr. Dave last weekend, last Saturday. He kicked off his shoes, he told me, and was sitting down to watch the football game. Uh, when Doug White's son-in-law called and said, gave him the news that Doug had passed away down in Columbia. So he put his shoes back on and went over to the community group that Doug was part of and, and told them. So Sometimes responding to people's needs doesn't come at very convenient times. And in the first five verses that we read, I want to read again, Jesus responds to different needs. Some people need rest. Some people need to be shepherded. We see that in these five verses. Let me read them again. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. We all need to rest We all need to embrace the Sabbath, time off from work, taking time away to rest and recharge. That is a human need that we often ignore to our own peril, long-term health. But occasionally, that time can be interrupted for the needs of people around you, as with those stories that I just told. Uh, It's a judgment call. Sometimes when you, whether you need to respond to what someone else labels an emergency, uh, sometimes there are good boundaries that you need to set to protect your time and your family time and your priorities. But other times, we can certainly find the bandwidth to go and help, uh, to give certainly our families more time, but our friends, our neighbors, we can carve out that time. Certainly, here, the disciples had been working hard. If you remember back earlier in the chapter, Jesus had sent them out two by two, and they had these amazing uh, times of ministry where they were healing and casting out demons and preaching to people. And they came back uh, really excited. I can imagine some of the stories they told Jesus, but even also tired and in need of some downtime. And so Jesus recognizes that the best way for him to minister to them is to help them get away, to rest and refuel from their journeys. Now, Mark doesn't mention this, but Matthew chapter 14 tells us something else about this specific time of withdrawal. And it's related to uh, what happened right before this. Even in Mark is that John the Baptist's 
death had been reported. And so Matthew says that Jesus heard that news and withdrew. So there's a sense that Jesus is in mourning all, and it's good and necessary for both him and his disciples. So they try to find a place to rest. But the crowd sees them, the crowd senses what's going on, doesn't really respect that need, and they run and beat them to the spot. I guess they figured, hey, this is where Jesus is going. So the question is, is Jesus irritated? Is he angry? Does he want his alone time at all costs? And no, it says that Jesus had compassion, right? Jesus saw them. He looked on them with spiritual eyes. Uh, The Greek word that Mark uses for compassion, I think I've put it in your outline, it's the same one that is used in the parable of the Good Samaritan. For when the Samaritan is passing, the wounded man on the side of the road has compassion, stops and cares for him. And that's, that's key with compassion, right? Compassion is more than pity, that is just sort of a feeling in your heart. Compassion moves you to action. The New Testament records nine times when Jesus feels this deep compassion, whether it was because of sickness or some other effect of sin in the world. He is moved. And it, you're tempted to just see that, okay, that's the, the human side of Jesus, but it, it's the God side of Jesus as well, right? God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have compassion on human beings So you think of verses like Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It says that Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he knows that he is the great shepherd who can meet them where they are. He knows he can care for them in the way that they need to be cared for. So Mark says that Jesus began to teach, and that is the greatest need of every human being, to be taught God's truth by God's people. Now Matthew and Luke both say that Jesus also healed their sick as he was also teaching. So he healed the sheep uh, and ministered and helped the sheep that way. But the day grows long. And no matter how much you are caring for people's spiritual needs and no matter how much they're hanging on your every word and being fed spiritually, it becomes evident that they had physical needs as well. So people need to be fed spiritually and physically. Verses 35 through 38. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Now take a minute and try to imagine 15,000 people in one place. Out on the grass area next to the lake, uh, 
Um, we don't know if it was mountainous, maybe. That's, I think John says that. But we always think of this story as feeding 5,000 people. But as you, at the end of the passage, it says 5,000 men. So we're, we're talking probably more like 15 or 20,000 people when you add in the women and children. The average student body of a high school in Loudoun County is roughly 1,500. So imagine 10 student bodies uh, of students out there all together. Or take the population of Percival. That is a massive amount of people. I don't think the disciples were being mean to say, send them away to get something to eat. Right? This was the definition of a multitude. And even as they hung on Jesus' every word as he was teaching, the stomachs are growling. Right? And nobody's made any advanced plans to have Uber Eats delivered. So Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. Now, the disciples probably didn't have you know, graduate degrees from certified universities, but they can do basic math. And it's going to be really expensive to buy bread food for this entire crowd. If a denarius was essentially a day's wage for a laborer, then 200 denarii was maybe eight months worth of wages for a laborer, maybe 15, 20,000. I think we'd calculate it in Sunday school. Close to $15,000 for the meal. That's why we do potluck picnics, right? Even if Judas had put all the money back in the treasury that had been stealing, they, they probably didn't have enough or they, they recognized that it needed to stretch farther. They also know that if they just go with what they have, five loaves, two fish, you, maybe you get to a couple rows of people, it's not going to go far. And everyone else is going to starve. So just like when Jairus brought Jesus to his daughter, but everyone said, no, she's dead already. And when the disciples turned to Jesus when the storm was about to kill them in the boat, or when a paralyzed man gets lowered down right in front of Jesus, Jesus gets handed one more impossible situation where there's not really a human solution. Right? No amount of trying, no modern medicine uh, no scientific procedures will bring someone back from the dead. None of that will stop a raging storm, a squall on the lake. It won't make a paralyzed man walk, and it won't feed a multitude with scraps. They've hit a wall. But the last six verses show us the resolution of the story and show us that Jesus meets all of our needs. Let's read those verses again, 39 through 44. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by fifties and by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now there are 
scholars who downplay that a miracle happened at all. And so one of the things that they'll say is something like this. The real miracle is that people saw how little food there was and they were moved to pull the food that they had brought out of their pockets. Uh, they were initially weren't going to share, but the miracle was that they decided to share. Um, you know, Mark doesn't record this, but John says that it, they, the, the, the loaves and the fish were just one little boy's lunch, right? And so the thinking is that the crowd saw that and said, oh man, if he can share, okay, we can share. And there's your miracle. R.C. Sproul tell, talks about how the minister at the church that he grew up in explained it this way, that Jesus had stashed a bunch of bread and fish in a cave that he was standing over or in front of. And there was somebody down there handing food up to him. And since he had a long flowing robe and like big sleeves, he just sort of passed it through and handed it. And it looked like he was multiplying it. That's clearly not how the text reads. Any of the four gospels that record this. These alternate helpful explanations are really just inserting their own worldview and their own twist on the narratives because they're not going to allow miracles in their worldview. If you start with the premise that it's impossible that God would intervene in human affairs, then you'll never allow any supernatural activity. You'll always explain it away. Why are you even studying Jesus' life is my question. Why don't you just call him a fraud, and just call it all lies and move on? Save yourself some time. The miracle happens because Jesus asks his heavenly father in prayer. The father responds and Jesus has the power to do anything. God could have sent enough bread for the entire world if he wanted but he gave what was needed in that situation. God takes a little of what we have and he multiplies its effectiveness many times over. Jesus could have rained this bread down from heaven, could have chosen a different way to do it, brought in boats full of fish, anything. But instead, he hands the food to the disciples to distribute. Again, a great reminder that God uses us to accomplish his will. Now, there's that note that Mark has about how much bread and fish is left over at the end of the meal, where he says that there's 12 baskets full, which used to puzzle me. I was like, so Jesus couldn't count? There was just, or he just made too much? Or, I don't know, maybe there's like gluten-free people that didn't want the bread, and they were, I don't know, it doesn't say, but... Michael Card points out that the Greek word for baskets is kofinon, which refers to a lunch pail-sized basket. It's a different word than Mark's going to use in this feeding of the 4,000 in two chapters. Um, that word is for like a large, long basket. I'm just trying to impress you with Greek, right? No, there's a point in that how many hungry disciples are there Standing there, there's 12. 
And how many lunch baskets left over are there? There's 12. So each has his lunch ready for him. They've been given their daily bread. Jesus has brought them in and provided for them as well. To me, we've probably talked about this in the sermon series, but a good reminder, Mark, to me, is the Ernest Hemingway of the gospel writers, right? You've read Hemingway, Old Man in the Sea, Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls. I don't know if those are still on required reading lists, but if you've read any of his stuff, you know he's just very sparse in his descriptions, and he's concise, straightforward, realistic, to the point. And that's Mark. Man, get right to the action. Keep the story moving. How does Mark describe the reaction of the crowd to the miracle? There's no frills. They ate and were satisfied. That's all we get. He gives the number of baskets left over, the number of the crowd, and then it's off in verse 46, and they hop on a boat and on to their next adventure, right? John records a bit more detail of the crowd's reaction in his gospel account. Uh, John 6, 14 and 15 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done. So, I mean, if you read Mark, you're like, I don't even know if they knew it was a miracle. But John clearly says, yeah, they saw it. They recognized it. And they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As we would expect, the crowd is amazed and decides that Jesus is some kind of prophet. They almost become a mob that would force him to become king. I don't know if they were going to march to Jerusalem right then and there and, and force things to happen. But Jesus clearly has a different time frame for his life and a much larger kingdom to rule than just Judea. So he doesn't allow that. But it's clear that the crowd recognized it was a miracle, which is not so clear in Mark's account. Now, this is not the first time that God had provided food miraculously for his people. In 1 Kings 17, uh, Elijah was given food when he was hiding from Ahab and Jezebel after he had announced the drought. It was brought to him by ravens. Several other times... um, it happens, but the, probably the most well-known incident is in Exodus chapter 16, when Moses has taken the people of Israel out to the wilderness, right? They've come through, escaped from Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness for what would end up being 40 years before they got to the promised land, and, and they're grumbling and complaining about starving and the hardships out there. God provided bread every morning. And meet every evening. And said essentially, every day, go out, gather what you'll eat that day, and eat it. Don't keep anything overnight. It'll spoil, it'll get worms, except for the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath. I don't want you collecting food. There's not going to be any food on the Sabbath, so take for two. And that is the only food that, that kept. It was a test to see if they would trust him to keep providing because if you don't keep anything overnight you're saying okay God's going to provide it tomorrow so 
Here in Mark 6 and in each of the other gospels that have recorded this story, the greater Moses provides food for the people. Now we get to call Jesus the greater Moses, just like we called him the greater David in December when we were going through the Psalms, and we call him the greater Adam or the greater Abraham, because that's a lot of the point of the Old Testament heroes, is that they did things in faith, they responded, but they were flawed men. Jesus is the perfect man who would fulfill and do it fully. And so Jesus is the greater Moses. And his miracle here has a greater significance. Mark is going to explain it a little bit later, but I want to turn to John chapter 6. Because John really reflects, or he quotes Jesus reflecting much deeper on the bread that he gives that feeds his people. Uh, So hang with me, it's a little longer passage, but it's totally worth it. In verses 26... I'm going to go through 35 and then jump to 57 and 58. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So referencing the feeding of the 5,000. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As the living, uh, this is skipping down to 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So the quick summary is that Moses asked God to provide food for the people that he led in the wilderness, and God did. The greater Moses asked God to provide food for his people, and God did that as well. But in a much greater way, God made Jesus the new manna, the new bread from heaven that his people would eat. How do you eat that bread? Well, that's what they've asked. And Jesus answers, believe in him whom God has sent. Verse 28, feed on this bread and you'll live forever. I realized late in the week that this text would be the perfect segue to communion. But we don't have that scheduled till next week. 
but some of the passages in between talking about talk about us eating his body and drinking his blood and having a share in him because taking communion is an, communion is an important part of recognizing what Jesus did in his death dying on the cross his body was broken his blood was shed for his people so we eat those common elements of bread and wine to symbolize to spiritually feed but we're going to have to wait till next Sunday to do that. Now, in this, we, of course, realize that we trust God for our physical needs. Jesus said that your heavenly Father will provide what you eat and what you wear. Matthew seven eleven, uh, sort of the ending half of the Sermon on the Mount is a lot about how God provides for his people in that that verse. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God provides. But as I've said, our greater need is spiritual. You stand before a holy righteous God who cannot be in the presence of our sin. All of humanity is born in sin and craves sin and turns our back on God. We cannot save ourselves in this fallen condition because we're spiritually dead. And dead people can't make themselves alive. But into this situation, this predicament, steps Jesus, the God-man, who lived a perfect life and offered up his body on the cross for our sins. We feed on Christ as the bread of life when we believe in faith that he has provided our salvation. That he has paid the penalty for our sins and suffered on our behalf. Again, if you believe, you will have eternal life. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. Now, at one point in putting this sermon together, that was the end. But it's only 11.32, so we got lots of time. And I did add, because a question kept bugging me as I was reflecting on this. That, um, yeah, we've answered how to feed on Christ in the ultimate way, the salvation way. We believe on him. We're saved through Christ. And we've, we've talked about how feeding on Christ then happens regularly in communion, but how do you feed on Christ every day? How, as we go about our days, Christ is there to provide for us. How can you feed on him? I think that's a great, that's probably the, the challenge, the application question, the, the question that hopefully you'll talk about over lunch or family devotions. Uh, we can't just make a decision to follow Christ once in our life and then we take communion and we just expect coming to church to meet all of our spiritual needs. It's a great practice. Come to church every Sunday. I highly recommend it. But again, we have to be active in the life of faith. Let me suggest a few areas. Hopefully you'll come up with a bunch more in family devotions. One area that, that I think about a lot is whenever you have a stressful time in life, you have a go-to behavior 
that makes you feel better. We all do. You probably don't tell a lot of people what it is. And you may not even recognize, maybe it's a kind of a subconscious. Uh, and it's different for all of us. Maybe it's comfort food, stress eating. Maybe it's a glass of wine or bourbon. Maybe it's internet shopping or real shopping. Um, maybe it's retreating to your fantasy life or uh, fantasy stories. Uh, losing yourself in movies or TV. Uh, maybe it's darker than those things. But there's something that you do that is the place you run to for comfort. When life is hard, when you don't feel good about yourself or when there's conflict that you can't control or when you need to feel better, that's where you go. And it works for a while, never for, for good. And, you, and maybe you've established this pattern so long you don't recognize it. You certainly don't know how to break it. But Jesus stands there with his arms outstretched saying, you are my child. You're, I'm your refuge. I'm your strength. Come to me. I will give you rest for good. That's one area. When you recognize whatever that is in your life, when you're tempted to go to it, go to, go to Christ. Second area, reading scripture, even memorizing scripture is invaluable to draw you closer to God and to give you daily food to feed on Christ. We need to be practicing that. We need to be reading the scriptures just come into Sunday school and church once a week. Again, highly recommended. But you need to read the scriptures throughout the week. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We feed on his word. Third area, uh, maybe similar to the first one, but there's a very famous John Calvin quote. You've heard it if you've been here for a lot of sermons the human heart is an idol factory. You've heard that? So knowing that your heart is going to produce new idols, to start worshiping something in creation, why don't you beat it to the punch? Why don't remind your heart that only Jesus is worthy of our worship? Remind yourself that when you wake up, Remind yourself how empty worshiping these other people and other things eventually becomes. Give Jesus the throne of your heart and maybe the idol's production will stop, slow down. We talk about obeying God, doing our duty, um, sanct being sanctified, spiritual disciplines, those are, and those are all good words, all good things, but what, what about if you thought about it in terms of feeding on Christ? I'm guessing you like to eat. We all love to eat. We all love to feed. See it as that. See that you can take pleasure in feeding on Christ. Beloved, feed on Christ by believing in him for salvation. Feed on Christ when you come to church 
when you take the sacraments and treasure him as you worship and hear his word expounded. And then feed on Christ every day, throughout the day, knowing that he will truly satisfy you. Let's embrace the words of the old hymn that we're gonna close with. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. I am not in need. Amen. Take a moment to close and ask you, ask the Lord to give you the strength to feed on him. And then I'll close us. Father God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for our ongoing study of Mark. And this is a very familiar account that if we've been in church at all, we've heard. Give us new eyes to see and new understanding of what it means for us to feed on Christ. That you provide for us physically and spiritually, that we should trust you to provide every day, but that we also turn to you, expecting greater things than the things around us. Lord God, we pray with common Jewish meal prayer. Praise be to you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. We cling to that. Thank you that you give us salvation through the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and then you feed us for the rest of our lives on him. Amen. Second Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Amen.